Mindset Game Podcast, and I'm your host, James Roberts. I'm a two-time Paralympian, online training and nutrition coach, and owner of James Robert Fitness. You can find more of my content by going to my website, fitamputee.co.uk. But before we get started with today's show, first off, let me take this opportunity to welcome back the regular listeners. And if this is your first time listening to the show, I hope you enjoy this episode and decide to subscribe to the show. And on today's show, I've got Steve Sidel. He is the owner, physical therapist and movement expert. He's been a CrossFit competitor since 2012 and he specializes in working with high-intensity athletes on their mobility, prehab and post-injury physical therapy. He came up with the neck hammock out of necessity as a physical therapist. One of the most frustrating injuries that he sees on a daily basis is neck pain. Strengthening and stretching exercises are okay, but he finds that cervical traction almost always provides the most relief. However, most at-home traction products are either too expensive and too bulky to carry around or that they are cheaply made and ineffective. He wanted to create a product that made sense financially, easy to travel with and has a comfortable fit and most of all makes your neck feel incredible. So welcome on to the show, Stephen. It's great to be here. I'm excited. So before we delve into today's topic, Stephen, can you divulge to my listeners uh, what was the initial thought about becoming a physiotherapist to start with? And then how did the actual neck hammock come to be? Yeah, so I um, I grew up being an athlete my entire life. And um, I remember my senior year figuring out what I wanted to do in the next stage of my life for school. And I was in a physical therapy clinic. And, um, you know, I just, I felt like it would be a good place for me to, number one, continue on my health and fitness journey. And uh, also be a great, you know, opportunity to, to help people and to be in an environment where, you know, I can I can really give back. And then I think I've seen a lot of articles you've put out. The actual neck hammock came about by accident. Is that correct? Yeah, it really kind of did. Um, the the thing behind it is that. You know, I, I had struggled with neck pain for years, and there was nothing that I could really give myself at home to alleviate that neck pain. And there's a technique called cervical traction, which has always given me relief in the past. And so one day I was I was working out and I tweaked my neck, and I was you know pretty frustrated. So I decided to create my own form of cervical traction by grabbing a resistance band, wrapping it around the back of my head, wrapping it around uh, you know, the back of um, a pole. I laid down in it for 10 minutes, and then 10 minutes later, my neck pain was gone. So I guess that's how you can say I stumbled onto the idea just by me simply finding a problem and creating a solution. But why do you think nobody's actually come up with the idea before you stumbled upon it? You know, I don't know if no one's ever come up with the idea. I will tell you that there's a big difference because, between coming up with a really good idea and actually developing that idea. Um, it requires a ton of work 
time, money, energy to truly bring an idea to life. And I think that's what stops a lot of people from pursuing their ideas. Because I think there's a lot of great ideas out there, but there's just not a lot of action. And to put into scope your, your actual idea, I think, well, my sports therapist was talking to my mother about it oh, I think about two weeks ago. So it was like, it's kind of the, it's, it's got uh, the global appeal right away because we're obviously in the UK and you, your state side. And um, also you featured on a few uh, high profile uh, programs in the US. So it's, it's, it's getting the recognition that it deserves, I believe. Yeah, you know, I think that it, it really is a product that I believe in. And it's a product that has helped many people up to this point. So I think it's only a matter of time before it really does become much more of a household name. It's just finding a way to strategically get it out to the world. That, that's, you know, for the last 10 years, I've been a physical therapist. I haven't done anything with e-commerce or digital marketing or anything like that. So this is all a completely brand new experience for me. So I think it's only a matter of time before the product does come out because I, I do re- feel very confident in its ability to provide people with with relief because ultimately that was why i created it in the first place is it was to help my own neck pain and then when i knew it helped mine then i knew it could help others and beyond neck pain now steven what what other things can it uh, not alleviate but help with um with in terms of pain relief yeah, so the cool thing is, is that it's very effective for many different people, even without neck pain. Um, I would say our second biggest audience is people with tension headaches, uh, because one of the benefits that it provides, uh, aside from cervical traction, is what's called suboccipital release, where the base pad essentially sits right at the base of the skull, where all like the tendons get really uh, thick and it decreases blood flow to the suboccipital nerve, which wraps around the top of your head, and that's what gives you like the tension headache. So um, people who have tension headaches have been very, very effective for, you know, and then going beyond that, just people who just need like a little bit of rest and relaxation. It just, that decompression just allows your whole body to just totally relax and let go. And I think we all have a pretty good understanding now of what the positive benefits are of, you know, meditation, decreasing stress, and it really just facilitates, um, you know, those things from hap- you know, from occurring. But you wouldn't you wouldn't think that it would help with relaxation because it doesn't look like it's um, a very relaxive state of holding your neck in in that kind of um position but obviously you would know better than i do being in that kind of position for well say you say 10 minutes and it alleviated your pain is it better than say somebody relaxing on a pillow is 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 it giving you more support than what a pillow would do then yeah, it does, because what, what you don't see effectively sometimes from just static images is you don't see the cervical traction that is taking place while you're laying down in it. So the resistance bands are they're gently decompressing your spine 
versus just like lying flat down on a pillow, they're actually creating that gradual gentle stretch of the muscles, tendons, and ligaments um, within your spine that gently separate your spine, increasing hydration to the discs, increasing blood flow to the nerves, all things that a traditional pillow just simply won't do. And, you know, the biggest thing, it's funny you say that on how it doesn't look relaxing. It's kind of funny that there's some people that look at it and like, oh, that doesn't look very comfortable. And then there's others that see it like, oh my God, that, that looks like it feels so good. So I guess it also kind of depends on what state your neck is in because it's, it's really funny. Your body knows what it likes and it knows what it doesn't like. And it knows when it needs a little bit of decompression in its life. So there's a lot of people that the second they see that, they're like, oh my God, I need that right now. You know, so that's kind of one of the effects of, of seeing those either images or videos. And if we go a step further now, Stephen, would it be a tool you could utilize to say, um, to a certain degree, help with sleep? Because you're talking about the relaxation uh, of the neck joint and, and the actual head itself. Would it help? And I, I know this is probably a general statement now. Would it help people? And I'll say me more specifically, because I tend to sleep on my stomach. Would it help to be able to relax and sleep on my back and for similar people of that nature? Yeah, so we actually have, and that's something I didn't touch on, but we have a lot of people who suffer from insomnia or sleep issues who use it right before bed. Now, obviously, insomnia, you know, can be a result of a slew of things, you know, whether it's like your mind wandering right before bed or, um, you know, you could have some sort of discomfort. But there's a lot of people that use it right before bed. And, and we're actually in the process of developing something so that you can use it in your bed as well. With that being said, I don't recommend people sleep in it um, for more than 15, 20 minutes because it's, there is a possibility that you can overstretch. Mm. You know, it's just like uh, the analogy that I use is, you know, if your hamstrings are really tight, if you were to stretch them for, you know, a few minutes, that'd feel great. But if you were to stretch it for two hours, um, you wouldn't do any damage to that hamstring, but you may actually feel like a little bit more stiff afterwards if you were to stay in that position for that long. Would it be a case of if we kind of go a step further then of doing uh, – you talk, talk about the hamstring now. Uh, w- would it be something similar of doing PNF stretch, which would you would do with a hamstring if it was tight? Would you do that with your neck in that, in that sense? Absolutely. So you're, you're getting into a lot of the higher-level questions that I get excited about that I don't really have the time to teach the general population when they first get it. But one of my favorite things to do when I use the neck hammock is I do PNF stretching to my neck before I use it. So for your listeners who don't really understand what that is, PNF stretching basically allows the muscles to relax much faster doing a stretch by turning the muscle on and off. And so one of the things that I'll recommend people do is, you know, while they're in it, they can do some side bending exercises to just get the muscles to just become very comfortable with the device. And then even some chin tuck exercises. And what's great about the chin tuck is for a lot of people who sit like behind a desk like this all day long and they get very tight in the back of their neck, the chin tuck is very effective in turning on the deep neck flexors 
which then turns off the extensors. So it allows those muscles to really open up and relax that wouldn't be quite as effective or it wouldn't, wouldn't be quite as immediate if you were to just jump in the neck hammock and just lie in it. Eventually, you know, three to five minutes into it, you'll get that. But doing some PNF exercises like that before you use it will just allow your muscles to relax that much faster. That's that's quite interesting that, that you say that. But in terms of, oh, this is probably a difficult question now, is it going to help alleviate, oh, say, tension in your upper shoulders as well? So it's a, also a great question. So we get people who say that not only does it help with their upper shoulders, because a lot of um, the tightness in your upper traps and, and whatnot has to, it, it stems from the neck. You get compression in the nerves in your neck that run into your shoulders. So when you're able to kind of free up, um, you know, the, the foramen where the nerves run through, when you're able to open that up, increase blood flow to the nerves, then that actually can decrease the tension in your, your shoulders and upper back. But we also get a lot of people, my mom in particular was the first that brought this to my attention, was that she actually feels most of the stretch in her low back. And what that tells me is that when you're lying in it for the 10 to 15 minutes, it's slowly just realigning your entire spine by keeping you in that, that traction position. Um, your muscles all the way from your neck down to your low back are actually affected. That's, that's, that sounds amazing in terms of like the results you said. But, but then coming back to the, the actual physiology of the body, uh, it's probably for my listeners, it's probably you've got that chain of muscle and it's all looks works as a chain. So it's, you think it's a root, the pain is in a certain area. It actually could actually be starting somewhere else. So you talking about your, your mother suffering with lower back pain and it's helped to alleviate that. It's, it's probably the two are interlinked and probably lo- lots of people don't associate those two as linked. Absolutely. You know, Many people, when they have pain in the shoulder, they only think about how can I fix the shoulder, right? They don't, they don't see the body as an entire system. And something in the neck may be actually be coming from the low back or something in the low back may be coming from the neck. You know, like if you have poor posture, your shoulders are forward, your head is forward. Well, when you're in that position for a long period of time, that actually puts a lot of strain on your low back because your low back now is working a lot harder to offset you from falling forward, trying to constantly pull you back. So it's funny how using the device can be just as much diagnostic as it is therapeutic in that it shows you some of those areas that you didn't really even realize were tight until you got into it. You're like, oh, wow, that really helped stretch and open up this that I didn't even know was an issue. I got it for my neck and that's totally fine. And in terms of like utilization for for the product now, Stephen, would you see it as a tool for rehab, prehab, or a little bit in between? It's really both. Um, we have people who I like to use it for um, for from a prehab perspective. I, I, I call it spinal hygiene. Um, so keeping the joints in your neck nice and lubricated and mobile. And also doing some like the PNF exercise that we discussed, you know, teaching your muscles in your neck how to actually turn on appropriately. Because many times people like to use like the big superficial muscles and that leads to a lot of the issues 
the tension headaches and other things like that. So from a preventative standpoint, it's great there. But then if you happen to tweak your neck like I did, you know, when I created it, or you happen to have some sort of chronic neck issue, it's also really great at treating that. It just kind of depends on the way that you treat it. Obviously, it's a little bit different um, frequency duration for, you know, for each. And now coming back to you, to, to the your actual initial injury, obviously you, you do a lot of CrossFit. Was it a overhead exercise that actually caused the nerve problem, the nerve problem, the neck problem initially? Yep. So I was doing this silly exercise called the handstand push-up, and your neck is really not designed to withstand the entire weight of your body. And me being about 210 pounds, if you do enough of those and your neck is already in a tightened position, then it's kind of like a, a catalyst for that type of pain that I had. So it was all that compression from the handstand push-up of my head, you know, hitting the ground that really just put my neck into that, that state of spasm. So naturally the decompression really helps with that. But you say that wouldn't many CrossFitters suffer from the same problem. And as a result, as a community, they would look to uh, either find an adaptation to that exercise or, or get rid of it completely. No, you bring up a great point. And for me, the day that I got injured, um, I, I, I know that I was working a lot that day. I think I was a little bit dehydrated. Um, I don't think I warmed up adequately my shoulders. So those things combined with the movement is what made the movement essentially, you know, tweak my neck. And plus, I, I've had a history of neck pain anyways. So there's plenty of people out there that can do handstand push-ups their entire life who have good shoulder mobility. You know, they have good technique and never have any neck issues. But you have people like me who did go in, again, not as prepared to do the movement that day. And as a result, you know, I tweaked my neck. But I've, I'd also dealt with neck pain for years before that, you know, playing American football, you know, and doing other things as well. So this was not my first bout with neck pain. But I think you raise a good point there, Stephen, in terms of hydration. A lot of people wouldn't associate uh, dehydration with uh, muscle tightness but obviously could you go into that into a little bit more depth in terms of from a neck perspective the importance of hydration 100 percent. and again me being both a former athlete and then physical therapist every single one of my major injuries that's happened while i did crossfit i was dehydrated that day every single time um whether it be a hip issue a back issue or whatnot. I had too much coffee that day. Didn't drink enough water. I went in tight. And, you know, we can look at it from a joint perspective of, you know, maybe your joints weren't lubricated enough, but a lot of it has to do with the hydration of the muscles and the hydration of the fascia. The fascia is something that is kind of this new thing that people are really learning a lot more about. And when you're dehydrated, it puts your, your entire fascial system kind of on a state of high alert where it's a lot more tense than it would be if you were hydrated. And it's that excessive tension that leads to the decreased mo range of motion and the decreased range of motion leads to increased compression and you know increased joint dysfunction and ultimately some sort of pain you know, you're more susceptible to having. And in terms of the hydration itself now, Stephen, 
would it be a case of trial and error for the person to implement that? Because it, the saying going is you want to hydrate yourself well before exercise, where most people would assume you would want to stay hydrated during exercise. It's, it's really one of those things that everyone is different and you have to just become very aware of your own body of how you feel when you're exercising, you know, and, and making like a, whether it's a mental log or an actual physical log of, well, this is about how much water I had today. Did the workout. I felt great or I felt like crap. Um, or if you play with drinking more water, like while you exercise, you know, everyone is just, everyone's bodies are just conditioned very different. Some people need a lot more water than others. So it's really just kind of like a trial and error thing. Like you were insinuating on what your body really responds best to. Because for me, I am very sensitive to caffeine. So even just like one cup of coffee can dehydrate me significantly to the point where, you know, I could be cramping after like a 60 minute workout. But what what would you do in that case? Would you look to um, not alleviate, get rid of the caffeine for the days that you're working out because that is the case? Or is it a little bit of you need to obviously replenish with water after you've consumed the caffeinated drink? Kind of a combination of the two. I I do strategically time when I have um, caffeine mm-hmm. versus when I work out. And I always try to make sure that if I do have any sort of caffeine that I am drinking enough, not only just enough water, but I also supplement with electrolyte tablets, which really help me. Um, so if mm-hmm. I know like I've had a lot of coffee that day, then I know that I'm either going to you know, supplement with the electrolytes or have some sort of like coconut water, which also really helps me with rehydration. So that's personally what works best for me. I know that some people could have four cups of coffee and, and feel no difference, but you know, that's again, what comes down to personal preference. And, and probably going a step further than that, Stephen, obviously that you've got the, the likes of the people that like to have, um, Oh God, what the name of the drinks, um, pre-workout and what like, and things like that. What impact would those have on their exercise state? Cause I know people get, jittery um everybody have different sensations to it but from um an impact on their actual training from a, a hydration standpoint would that have any bearing at all yeah i i really think that number one it, do, it certainly does have an impact but it the impact is different depending on the type of exercise that you're doing so if you're just going to go and do like some sort of olympic lifting or powerlifting, whatever you can get away, be totally fine, you know, experience no issues of cramping. Um, if you were to take those pre-workout drinks, uh, like the C4s or the things like with a lot of caffeine, a lot of creatine in it, before a, pre, uh, a CrossFit workout, the chance of it affecting you is going to be significantly higher. Or, the, or if you were to take that before like a 5K or 10K run, it's probably going to affect you much worse um, from a cramping perspective just based on the activity that you're doing. And all that was stemmed from the, the, how you, um, not tolerate caffeine, but how you reacted the caffeine intake then. Yeah. Again, it's kind of a combination of the two. Um, I know that that's why like in the CrossFit world, for example, 
pre-workout drinks are not very popular because they people just don't respond well to them with the type of workout that CrossFit usually is. Versus if you look at the traditional like bodybuilding world or like the 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 average like gym setting, you know, people can take it and be just totally fine because, you know, different intensity and duration of their workouts. But again, there's some people that can take it and, you know, they can go to bed two hours afterwards. And there's other people that take it and they can't go to bed till two o'clock in the morning. So just different sensitivities for different people. Well, that's definitely true. But then the saying going is normally the general rule is not to have anything caffeinated after 4 p.m. It is. I mean, my wife could have a coffee at 8 p.m. and be in bed by 10. She'd be fine. If I have something past 3 p.m., then I'll be up to, you know, 11 that night. So uh, it's, you know, everyone's different when it comes to that regard. But I, the general rule of thumb is no caffeine past like 4 or 5 p.m. for sure. And now, Stephen, coming back to the, your initial point with you doing American football, uh, do you think that playing that kind of oh gosh, how would I word this now, kind of, um, not combat sport, but collision sport will have a greater risk on, on your overall neck health. Absolutely, 100%. I mean, whenever you're talking about, especially nowadays, how guys are getting bigger, faster, and stronger, um, I don't care you know, how much safer they make the helmets, which they, which they have come a long way. They've made them a lot lighter, which makes it safer. But it no doubt affects the neck. I mean, when I was playing, my neck, I was like a size 18, 18 and a half. And that was purely just a direct response to the impact that I was constantly putting on it. And as a result, I know that my vertebrae also grew and therefore my neck range of motion decreased. So, you know, it's just the demands that you place upon your body, your body responds in that way. And for people that do play it or are looking to play it, in the future, would you say they need to look at obviously doing a lot of the exercises we were talking about in terms of PNF stretching for the neck to safeguard obviously well the those discs in, in, in the cervical chain of the spine more so for their overall well being? I mean if you're with the amount of contact that there is with American football you should be addressing your neck just like you address your squats or your deadlifts or your cleans, all those major muscle movers. Because if your neck, if you break your neck or if you injure your neck, you can't do anything. You know, you're, depending on severity, you know, your career could be over depending on how bad you injure your neck. So keeping that healthy, strong, and mobile is super important for the longevity of the career, however long you want to play. And obviously, it's very prominent in terms of actually um, brain health now. With the, the, the obviously the NFL players suing the NFL for uh, being a bit, bit, little bit misleading in terms of the safety of the sport. But is that coming back to the root cause of they're not putting the importance on their overall neck health and? Obviously, it was a little bit more violent. We took it five, ten years ago because they were allowed to use the helmet as a weapon. Um, do you think it that is some of the, the the causes, or do you think, as you you were touching upon, it's because they've got fast, bigger, and faster 
thus the collision is got, and the forces that they're exerting on each other are going to be that much greater. It's really a combination of things. It's the things that I just mentioned, but I mean, even when I was playing football, there's some guys that just led with their head on every tackle, you know, and there's some guys that were just way more aggressive, you know, using their head and necks than others. Therefore, the chance of them having any sort of like brain issue later on in life is going to be significantly higher than those that don't. You know, it's like your analogy with the handstand push-ups. There's some people that can do it and you're going to be totally fine. And then there's other people, you know, that go out and play football and, you know, they're at severe risk, whether it be genetic predisposition, whether it be the actual like anatomy and physiology of their body or just the actual action itself on, you know, how are they playing the sport? Are they using proper technique, you know, or are they constantly using their, their head as a hammer um, that eventually is going to catch up to them? So it's, it, you can't just point to one thing. It'd be very easy to do that, but. Um, that would be very effective. But then you have the, on the one side all those arguments for the for, for getting rid of it completely. But you're going to still what what is the the draw for people wanting to still play the sport now? People know that all the risks that it can entail would 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 it being so prominent in the media? I mean, why do people go skydiving? You know, why do people jump off of cliffs? Why do people surf 50-foot waves? You know, it's we're naturally adrenaline junkies. Uh, football is extremely fun to play, and if I could do it again, I absolutely would. You know, growing up, it's just it was um, it it just taught me so many things in life you know, like moving forward about, you know, mental toughness and training hard and, you know, working together as a team. And, and it's just like a blast to go out there and play, but you can look at that. But then you, you can also look at soccer, for example. And now there's a lot of evidence that shows that soccer players have a ton of brain damage as well, too, um, from constantly hitting the ball or, you know, boxing. There's just, you know, anything with high reward comes with high risk, you know? And so I don't think that, football is going away anytime soon you know they're going to try to add as many rules to make it as safe as possible but you know with as big as these guys are getting as fast and as strong as they're getting it's just it's going to be an issue that's not going away anytime soon and um you know it's i mean even look at back in the day of the gladiators i mean you know we've always had this appeal to you know really bad things for us because we enjoy doing it I, I definitely agree with that 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 um, compelling argument you raise there. It's it's. I think people like the um, the actual uh, well the the conflict and and the the, the carnage that that it ensues because it's it's enthralling to watch. You get a kick out of. Uh, the 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 action that's around you and, and and all that, but I don't know. It's like like you say. It's 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 you you you're in it for a big reward with sports like what like you mentioned. Uh, but it's it's difficult for being on the outside. But you can have head collisions in in any sport at times, and more well, they're probably accidental, but you're going to have a, a force, so it's going to have some impact on, on, on your uh, 
overall uh, brain health. And, you know, and the thing is, too, is, like, where I grew up, I grew up around, like, a lot of, like, you know, kids who didn't have the greatest upbringing, didn't live in the best neighborhoods. Like, football is their chance to get out. You know, like, sports is their chance to get out of, you know, where they where they came from. They use their athleticism. They use their aggression to their advantage to then, therefore, get through high school, get, like, a scholarship to a, a college that, that they wouldn't have gotten academically and then potentially make some money as a pro. So, you know, that's another big reason why a sport like that, I don't see going, you know, any away anytime soon because you only can have so many baseball players. You can only have so many basketball players. And, um, you know, eventually for a lot of these other kids, they're just, they're willing to take that risk knowing the potential rewards. Well, it probably helps the sport itself that it's an American pastime as well. Yep. And it's just, it's just getting more and more popular. It's not like people are becoming less interested in watching it. But, but why, why is that? Because if you think of it, they're more so at the top end now. If they're making it safer, if you think of the tra- traditionalist now, how far, is it, how far are they taking it from what it was? Well, probably more dangerous say 40 50 years ago than it is now but then as you you put across the people the the players are now faster more athletic and and obviously better at their their craft than they were back there so the collisions are going to be worse so it's 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 very it's the, obviously what I, my the my argument for that would be they're making it safer. They're going to have more penalties, so that pe- uh, people are not going to lose interest as a result of that. Well, another great uh, example is the UFC. When the UFC first started, there was no rules. You know, you could gouge people's eyes out. You can do very horrible, horrible things to that. They've since added a bunch of rules, a bunch of regulations to what you can and cannot do in the ring to make it "quote unquote" safer. But I don't think the two of us would say that the UFC is safe by any means, but they've added things to help improve the health of these athletes. The same thing with football. They're making it safer, but it's never going to be safe because these collisions are still going to happen. They're just trying to minimize or reduce the unnecessary collisions of potentially injuring a quarterback that doesn't need to be hit, you know, and things like that. So I think that there's still ways that, it's going to be just as exciting, even if not more exciting, because the players are getting bigger, faster, stronger to watch the overall speed of the game, the athleticism of the game, the amazing catches and throws and all those things that go with it. It's not just about the, the really nasty hits that potentially can injure people. You know, so same thing with hockey. Hockey is like the most fun to watch during the playoffs when they cut down all the fights. You know, during the season when everyone's fighting, the games are actually less enjoyable to watch because it's it's a distraction from the actual, like, pure athletic talent that's on the ice. So it'll never be safe, but they can do things to mitigate at least some risk. And then probably getting your your, um, expertise on this, I think rugby is trying to come in line similar to what the NFL is doing in terms of actual players' well-being from a concussion standpoint. They've, I think they changed the rule this summer in terms of 
uh, what it constitutes a high tackle. They've now, I think, lowered it from what was the sh- the top of the shoulder now to I think it's below the chest. So anything that goes above the chest is obviously a high tackle now. But is that because they're looking to stamp out uh, aggressive play, uh, kind of and kind of get the players to focus more on their technique and, 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 and have a a little bit of empathy towards their other player, which is kind of, from both of us being athletes, is very difficult to do in a team environment. You, you, you don't really have any uh, empathy towards that person's safety because you're, you're in my opposition. Why would I have your well-being in mind? Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely takes out the kill shot, right? It takes out the, the ability to really hurt someone. Granted, you could tackle someone in their chest and still really hurt them, you know, if you hit them hard enough. But would you act rather than be injured because they got hit in the chest or because they got hit in the head, you know? Um, you can recover from, you know, an issue from here down, but here up, you know, you're you're talking some some catastrophic injuries that potentially could eliminate you from the game entirely. So. Again, they're doing what they can to reduce the risk, but the risk is still there. The guys are still – I mean, a rug, of all the sports, I think that rugby players are some of the craziest um, as far as playing through pain and the, the types of things that they push themselves through is just – I've never seen that in any other sport, um, not even close. So it is good that they are trying to add in some sort of regulation to that. But, what, but why is it – the single most sport that they play for injury because is it because of oh, and this is probably prominent in a lot of male sports the stigmatization of you need to play for it because people why do not believe you're you're making out to be worse than it actually is there's there's a lot of that but there's also it goes back to the whole like team camaraderie i find that like rugby teams are really close to each other. It's like a really big bond. Any type of sport where there's a lot of contact and you're essentially fighting, you know, with each other against someone else, you're essentially going to battle. That sense of camaraderie there is so strong that they're willing to play through serious injuries because they want to do what's best for the team and not what's best for themselves. Is at least, I, I think, one, one element. Um, to be considered but shouldn't they kind of change that kind of ethos and mindset to a certain extent because and this is probably very kind of aligns well with this episode obviously the front row are probably going to be the ones more at risk of neck problems because they are having that collision head to head well it's shoulder to shoulder but obviously there's going to be a that load through the neck more so than the other positions. It's just like, it's one of those situations. It's like the whole like masculinity thing and manliness thing is, you know, I'll deal with it later, you know, type thing. Like, let me just get through this game. Let me get through this match. Let me get through this, whatever. And then I'll, I'll be able to heal it and recover tomorrow. You know, it's, um, it, it's an ethos that, yeah, in theory would be great to change, but, just a lot of guys that they are so stuck in their own way of thinking of just doing whatever they can to get through. I mean, I, I saw a guy 
he had a fractured uh, vertebrae in his neck to the point where if he got hit hard enough, um, he would he would sever his spinal cord. I mean, it was that bad. And he, it took us everything that we could to not get him to play. You know, he knew the risk. He knew all that, but he still just wanted to be out there with his team. And, you know, that, that's, that's beyond bravery. That's, that's stupidity at that point, you know, but the, again, it's just that mindset. I, I don't know how you fix that. Some people would just have it. Well, that's a bit, a bit of lunacy as well. You're thinking, well, you, you don't need much to go wrong and it's, you're in a wheelchair. And you paralyze. It's all for the it's all for the glory of the game, you know. Like the glory of battle, it's the glory of the game. So some people are just like that. Yeah, but then if you probably go a step further than that, back then, like gladiatorial wise, that's life or death. I think you would think in being in the twenty first century we would be a little bit removed from that. Whereas you, you only get one neck, you only, you've, you've only got one spine. You, you need to uh, utilize it to the best of ability because it's it's going to degrade with time anyway, but why speed up that process? Some of us have evolved better than others. But But then how would you get through to that person or, or, or can't you? Well, you can bring up family members. Like if you were to injure yourself like this, don't just think about yourself. Think about your daughter or your wife or whatever. Think about your teammates you're letting down. If you get injured, you can't play anymore. You know, the, typically you, you, you take it off their shoulders and you put it on someone else and that usually brings them down to earth more effectively than on themselves. And then... My, well, my penultimate question to you, Stephen, would be in terms of, say, for your neck hammock now, who would benefit more so, athletes utilizing it or the general public? I can't, I can't say who could benefit from it more because both benefit from it equally. We have a ton of people who, um, you know, like I, get, I feel like a lot of WWE wrestlers and with all of the pounding that they get on their necks, like they all gravitate to it. I mean, there's probably 30 wrestlers out there who all own neck hammocks, but you have the, on the opposite side, the very sedentary desk jockey who, you know, just needs that decompression because they're just always just stuck in this really bad position all day. So there's such like a wide array of people that can benefit from it for very different reasons. And my final question for you before we wrap up the episode, if you had to summarize what we've been speaking about today into one sentence for people to take away, what would that be? Um, you know, I think that ultimately in this day and age, there's a lot of information out there, but we as as humans as individuals we have the power to heal ourselves i believe that the human body is the most amazing machine ever created and it can heal so many things that we don't think that it can as long as we provide it with the tools necessary to heal and to succeed and the neck hammock is just one of those tools that can help facilitate healing of the spine of the neck 
um, you know, and stress reduction. So that's, I guess, my best synopsis of, of, of our conversation. So once again, Stephen, thanks again for coming on the Mindset Game podcast. Thanks a lot, James. And before I forget, I would really appreciate it if you would be so kind as to leave a short review as it helps to get the podcast more notoriety and it will be more visible in future to others and thus helping more people, which my guests and I are all about. Once again, thanks for listening and I'll catch you next time for another episode of the Mindset Game Podcast. Oh, my God.